Hello, my name is Lawrence Woodruff. I have a bachelor's degree in genetics, a master's degree in secondary science education, and I am starting my 12th year teaching in a suburban public high school. And I'm Michael Ralph, and my initial degrees were in biology education, and I earned a PhD in educational psychology, and I recently began a role as a vice president and director of research at Multistudio. Professional development requires ongoing reflection and dialogue. So join us as we spend our Saturday discussing education research and drinking beer. Today, we are drinking our first beer of a new season, which means we have a new theme. Now, dear constant listener, for those of you who have been with us, you know that last year our theme was cinnamon, and that was not to Dr. Ralph's taste. And so I gave him an opportunity to direct the theme this year. He thought about it for a month, and he said he wanted the beer to have some essential beer quality that is like the beeriness of the beer. And I gotta tell you, that was not a mastery submission of the assignment. And if this were my classroom, I would have given him extensive feedback, told him this is not mastery, this is fail, you may submit again. But I didn't do that. I didn't give him any feedback and I'm not grading him. So I'm thinking, what the heck do I do with that? So I started thinking beer, 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 beer. And so then the words got to me. And I, then I started thinking about the word beer. So let's look at the etymology of beer. The word beer comes from Old English. And from that, it came from Old Germanic, from the monastic Latin be bear to drink and beer being the thing they drank. And uh, then I got this monastic tradition. And so we are drinking all Trappist ales this season because that is the essential beer. I don't know. I don't know if you'll regret to be informed or not, but you have marked me as uh, not meeting thresholds for competency and given me remarkably positive feedback for that because I am so excited for this theme. So... Our first beer of this season is the Westmall Trappist Triple. The Westmall Brewery, uh, well, first it was an abbey founded in 1794. It became a brewery in 1836. This brewery is noted for having brewed what is considered to be the first double in all, in all of, you know, like recorded beer history. Uh, and what we are drinking is uh, the first modern use of the title triple. So there was no triple before this beer that we are drinking today. It's exciting. Also, I learned something because I've, of course, drank triples before. Uh, I have always believed they were tr pronounced tripel, and they're well, maybe not. they're not. They're not, because I just looked it up, no. and you pronounced it correctly. It is spelled uh, sort yeah. of like ye old shop. It is spelled in a way that evokes the um, the origin of the word, but the pronunciation is the same as triple. So, uh, cheers. What are we doing today, Dr. Ralph? A meta-analysis of co-teaching showed that it benefits students to have more than one adult in the classroom, regardless of the specifics. We reflect on what it could mean to successfully build a co-teaching classroom based on trust among the teachers and students. Later, we read another meta-analysis that is sharply critical of the current research on growth mindset. We consider what their critiques mean for our past support of growth mindset research and what elements of growth mindset we want to keep for now. 
Let's get started. For our first segment, we read The Effects of Co-Teaching and Related Collaborative Models of Instruction on Student Achievement, a Systematic Review and Meta-Analysis. This was written by Mikkel Helding Vimby, Felix Weiss, and Bethany Hamilton Bott. And this was published in Review of Educational Research in 2022. This paper reviews co-teaching models and finds a moderate effect from co-teaching regardless of most characteristics of the actual approach used. They emphasize the importance of clear inclusion criteria, risk of bias assessments, and theoretical and empirical synthesis in future research. I'll tell you what, the uh, this whole episode is kind of like that. You saw the title. Um, that was kind of a coincidence with two compelling papers happening to both be uh, reviews or meta- and meta-analyses. Uh, this paper oper- uh, defines co-teachings in three different modalities. The sort of traditional, what I guess they call it sort of the baseline traditional co-teaching type of approach where you've got a, you've got two certified professionals in the classroom. One of them is the content lead. One of them is the special education support. Uh, content lead is leading special education special education support is supporting, they're cooperating, they're working together, that's happening. They also have the uh, teacher, teacher assistant model where the teacher's doing all the leading and the teacher assistant is doing a lot of the clerical behind the scenes paperwork type stuff. And then also the paraprofessional model where the teacher's licensed and then you've got another adult in the room cooperating with the teacher uh, on a case-by-case basis for what we're going. That, that's sort of how they define the initial modes. When we're talking about co-teaching, we're talking about one of those models. For the most part, although I want to point out, even in that description, uh, you've kind of exemplified one of the things that they called out a little deeper in their um, in their discussion of how people understand co-teaching, which I think I think to give it the broadest definition is just having more than one adult in the room. Yeah. With in some instructional capacity, uh, but uh, the most common format being um, somebody who is uh, certified in a general education track and somebody who is certified in a special education kind of certification, but that that doesn't necessarily mean, nor sh- should it, um, put the special education professional in an assistant type role, um, but that some models, I think a lot of scholars who do work on specific collaborations between general education and special education focused professionals would argue that they, they should not be in an assistant role, but that they should be collaborating and be uh, working as peers or handing off uh, leadership responsibilities one after the other, although that gets into some of the notes that I want to discuss later. Um, but they really drew out in their description of those different formats um, that there are differences in how people might conceptualize co-teaching uh, as either a hierarchy or a heterarchy um, in that classroom. And specifically, they added one more that I actually had to go back in my notes and add it because I understood the initial list the same way you've described it. But they also included in this team teaching, which is having more than one content certified or general education focused professional in the room Um with classes. And so you could think of that as an English teacher and a history teacher working together, doing some sort of interdisciplinary experience or otherwise sharing a space um, or any, any, any set of more than one content focused instructor. And so all of those things really, I think, boils down to they were looking at studies that evaluated having more than one adult in a room with instructional responsibility. 
Yeah. And they actually looked at a lot of other variables. And I am disinclined to list all of those other variables. There was a lot. And there were there were a lot. Uh, and the reason why I'm disinclined is because they didn't matter. <laughs> was yeah, there especially in a lot of the literature that they read, some of the peer-reviewed like scholarship where they talk about co-teaching is can be good, but you have to do X and Y and Z, and they list off all of these different things that you need to, that they argue somebody needs to worry about in order to effectively implement co-teaching. And I'm going to argue that perhaps the biggest finding in this paper is that something that I think you and I maybe already knew. Yeah. Be in each other's classrooms. Absolutely. That's my boom right there. Be in each other's classroom. Boom. Um, and it's so it's so relevant to me viscerally in the life that I'm living right now. Um, it's always about people resources. We're down a school psychologist. We're not going to replace it. Oh, there was budget cuts two years. Our, our science department has, we have through attrition permanently lost a position. We have shrunk. Class sizes are not shrinking. Uh, like we are constantly, we've lost a library Kirk. So the librarian can't have the, library as open as often that's a complaint for all teachers uh and students but we do have new laptops like we fire teachers and we have new laptops and that's 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 how we do in education uh it didn't matter which model of multi-adult instruction they had. They were a beneficial to all students with a greater benefit for special needs students. That's like the, like if I'm going to say it in one sentence, that's it. That's the, that's the whole 100 page paper in one sentence. And uh, we fire, I, I say we fire, we lose people via attrition. Uh, and this, we shouldn't, we shouldn't, we shouldn't, you know, the excuse that it's, it's different money just means we should, we're asking for the wrong money. Stop asking for money for the stuff that doesn't help us do our job. Ask for the money that helps us do our job. If it's different money. I mean, I don't want to, I don't want to give anybody the wrong impression is great from a science standpoint. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. The the researchers, the way that they wrote this being incredibly transparent, they posted their material yeah, on an open super. source uh, on open science. And so any like if you listener are curious about their specific analysis strategies, you too can go to their open science website and see all of the things that they did and all of the data that they're using, which is excellent yeah. from a meta-analysis standpoint. More on that in the next in the next segment. But as far as takeaways or shoulds, and I, I can't help but keep thinking about our conversation with Yuki last season, when we're like some of the most impactful studies being meta-analyses or reviews, and I was I was I was snippy about that. But like it is incredibly useful. So here I am being like, yeah, this meta-analysis is incredibly useful from the standpoint of laying out some of those preconceptions about what is required to make co-teaching valuable not actually being a prerequisite for success, I think is actually liberating from a policy standpoint. If we can if we can be more creative about helping get teachers support, like adult support 
in their classroom environments, we actually have a lot of latitude as policymakers, as educators who are advocates for particular policies. We have a lot of latitude about what that can look like depending on the assets you have available. So if you have highly engaged parents and they want to come in and just hang out and be supportive in the classroom, do it because teaching assistance also had a positive impact. If you've got a, an idea for a collaboration between an English teacher and a social studies teacher and you want to get your two classes together for that project, do it because it was incredibly valuable. If you have an idea to more robustly integrate the special education professionals so that they can help you move content forward in your class by working together and, and empowering them to work with all of your students, do it because it's incredibly powerful, especially for the students that your special education professionals are tasked with supporting, students wow. who have 504s, students who are on IEPs. So do it. Like it, from the standpoint of being able to be creative so that individual teachers are not in a position where they're teaching by themselves when they could be teaching in community with other adults. This, I think, gives permission, especially the one that I wanted to zoom in on was a... a I'm going to say a recommendation in previous studies saying co-planning is essential for success. And I think that that's really, it's, it feels weird to say don't plan together, but it got me thinking about what are the assumptions for what has to happen in a classroom in the first place? Well, well, I don't think the should is don't plan together. The should is recognizing that planning together is not quintessentially required. Did they say something in there that like voluntary and like, like that, you know, if you mandate pairings, they're less effective than if they are. Because, than if they are. Because trust and teaching relationships. Yes. Is an essential component. I'm thinking specifically about the time you and I spit in each other's classrooms, yeah, however many, you, however many years ago. And like. I would walk into your classroom tomorrow yeah. having no earthly idea yeah. about what you were doing. But if we're already creating, like thinking about the other elements of a person's pedagogy, which were was beyond the scope of this study, like they don't they don't have any way of knowing or they didn't know what was specifically happening in the individual classrooms that went into the studies that fed this study, right? We're pretty far removed from that. But thinking about especially that question of who's in charge, that was something they discussed a lot in the initial setup, and I even drew it out in our first conversation, is one teacher in charge and the other is assisting? Or what if that question doesn't even make sense? What if the teacher is at the very beginning facilitating that students are more self-directed and so neither teacher is particularly in charge? Or to, I, what I would imagine would happen if you and I were in a classroom at any given moment, it would be a much more fluid kind of, I'm modeling responding to a question you ask. And then if I have a question, I would raise that question and you model responding to it. And then a student raises an excellent question and we both model responding to it. And so having a much more, I'm going to say that word again, because I loved it when we read it, hierarchical structure in your classroom renders the who's in charge question moot. And I think re-contributes to the power that can be present even if you have additional adults in the room who are not certified teachers. If you can just have a relationship with them and they understand how that classroom culture works and how they can be participants in it and model it, I think it can be powerful even if they don't know very much biology or they don't know very much math, but they can model being a math learner 
and they can support students who are engaged in their own journeys. And they can do that if we know each other and we understand how that's supposed to work. To close the loop then, um, co-planning ahead of time with your partner isn't isn't a mandatory prerequisite, but find the relationship that works with your partner to make it work in the classroom. And if that's one of you does all the planning, that's fine. And if you both take turns planning, that's fine. And if you do all the planning together, that's fine. And if one of you is pure improv always, that's fine. It, it's okay. Like the get into each other's classrooms and leverage each other's strengths to have that experience. And so then, while you were talking, I said, wouldn't it be a great idea if, like, one of us is, like, in the front leading, and then there's some student in the room who says switch, and we just switch places, and then now I'm in the in roaming, I'm the roamer, and you're in front, and we just, we just pass that baton and go, like, wouldn't that be fun? And, like, give them the, the like, I have a question for this teacher, I have a question for that teacher, I want this teacher to do, I want your diagram, I want, like, if they were directing who was, quote, leading at the moment, or directing, like, if we were performing at their direction, wouldn't that be an awesome classroom dynamic to, to promote? I, I'm enjoying living in this fantasy right now. Right, yeah. Um, fun. And honestly, my head immediately, and I mean immediately, went to, I would be really excited to do that and I would want to commit to doing it all year long because I would be dying to know what day of the school year does a student say, I call on Beth. Yeah, right. Beth, year. you're up. Love and it. one of the students stands up and is like, yep, I'm it. And so eventually you have this like this incredibly like like the extreme democratic environment yeah. where they're like, Jose, Jose is in charge today. And we're like, OK. And we just sit down and then Jose stands up and goes and they're like, yep, OK. And then Mohammed, you're up now. And he gets up and yep. he goes up to the chalkboard and like you develop that community culture that when you see adults, multiple adults contributing, I think that it decenter as any single adult. I agree. And also the the adults, if you're comfortable, if you're uncomfortable, if you are comfortable, as I believe Michael Ralph and I are comfortable with each other, like if Michael Ralph says something that I think he either misspoke or he made a mistake or he is just wrong about that thing, like for instance, the pronunciation of triple, like we will call each other out. We are beyond the like, like there is there no one is saving any face between us no grind that to dust and if we can model that for our kids that like we are all here to pursue improvement together and that's not an uncomfortable process thanks mr wood bump and we can celebrate that because the correction is an act of love but uh this brought back echoes of the episode about the role of the cooperating teacher and how they tend to fade away into the background when things are good. And, and in that paper, it kind of suggested that, you know, maybe co-teaching models are better and it would just probably be better for every single person in that room for the uh, cooperating teacher to kind of go in the opposite direction. You know, like let's just be more active with ourselves and each other and our student teachers and our classroom teachers instead of fading away let's jump right back in uh and so like it, it kind of makes that like that was kind of hinted at in the first paper but it's way way heavily reinforced with this one. First of all yes just hard yes and what i so i'm like i'm trying to explain to myself why do i think that doesn't currently happen i think that's probably incredibly difficult for the mentor teacher because that's something we don't get any practice with. Like education is so fundamentally hierarchical, that's hard to do. 
that's a hard thing to do. That's a hard line to walk to be able to generate, to mutually build healthy power dynamics in a setting where I'm going to speak for myself. I'm going to say all, all of my experience and training is reinforcing the opposite, right. is reinforcing you be in charge, your opinion is more important, or you need to do X or Y. And so to dismantle that is a very heavy lift. And we mentioned it a little bit when we talked about that paper, whatever episode it was, that there's a train like you fight kind of situation. No, Like we don't know where you're going to work student teacher, but let's be real. This wonderful paper about co-teaching is still a, uh, a unicorn of an environment. You're, you're statistically speaking, you're not going to co-teach. You're just going to be in your room. So if I give you this awesome and experience where we have an egalitarian classroom the kids are owning and we are we are serving them as as kind of sherpas in this learning space but they're the ones that are that are making the decisions and it's all awesome and it's incredible and we did it together and then you go out and that experience is nothing like this one will i have underserved you as a as a preparer of a future educator and so that that is a tension that is real and we we discussed that when we talked about the paper uh but you know changing the landscape to saying what is better for our learners should be what we are doing is also something that we should be aware of. Do good stuff and then change the system so that other good stuff can happen in the other parts of the system. Their inclusion criteria, the authors of this meta-analysis, they were focused on long-term co-teaching arrangements I'm watching you because I, I know that you read this, I think, more deeply than I did. That's okay. Yeah, they were. They were. There, there was a long-term was 10-day minimum, right? But the, the note that I made in my notes was thinking about that specific question of like the factor of time. And especially, again, going back to our experience of being in each other's classrooms, that I wasn't in your classroom every day, but we did it for a, a long time, yes. like throughout the throughout the school year. And so I, I am wondering about, and especially the, the construction of trust, like the trust in the classroom and in the environment. And so there's an element of trust between the two professionals. But also, like, going back to that fantasy of if I just showed up to your classroom on Tuesday and was like, sup, let's do biology. I would be super pumped to see you there. Yeah, and I think that you and I would be very comfortable in the room with each other, but the students have no earthly idea who I am. And that matters. Right. And right. so I think one of the things to consider, and I'm not, I'm not setting up saying don't be in each other's class. That's not what I'm setting up. But I'm saying perhaps doing a single visit can start to build some muscle memory and some institutional structure to support longer term visits to each other's classrooms. But I do think visits are different than being a member of a classroom. Empower each other. For our second segment, we read, Do Growth Mindset Interventions Impact Students' Academic Achievement? A Systematic Review and Meta-Analysis with Recommendations for Best Practices. This was written by Brooke McNamara and Alexander Burgoyne. Published in Psychological Bulletin in 2023. 
This paper reconducts a meta-analysis of growth mindset studies with attention to previously neglected design flaws like type 1 errors, lack of subgroup analysis, or mismatch of effort equaling growth mindset. They find the overall effect of interventions is probably due to other elements often present in growth mindset interventions, such as an emphasis on effort. I, I can't in good conscience recommend anybody be on Twitter, but like the author has already done summaries that are very good of this paper, and I have engaged some of that content. So this was not a clean read for me the same way that almost all other papers on this show are. Uh, one thing that I learned that kind of made me uncomfortable, it kind of made me disappointed, it kind of made me sad. That, you know, I didn't know about all of this, like, brainology growth mindset as like a capitalist product thing that really disappointed me i was like oh that exists which makes me feel like this paper must exist like this is just the appropriate checks and balances of this consequential ecology continuing to acknowledge our past presence because we have fawned over growth mindset papers before on the show even. And I particularly, I, I like David Yeager in particular, who is a heavily cited author in this in this paper. I don't know him, but he's engaged with our show and I we've read his past papers. And I just generally, I, I positioned myself as a fan of his. The, I don't, I was really, I was nervous going into this paper because I was nervous that growth mindset is our decades learning styles. Mm. That is what I was nervous about. A promising initial intervention that subsequent more robust studies undermine. And specifically, something that is intuitive and easy to help proselytize something that i can evangelize i can generate buy-in for that leads to a lot of really good things even if it itself is flawed which is how i view learning styles if i talk to a teacher and a teacher says you know what i cater to a lot of learning styles and i'm like oh you're my enemy what an ignorant jerk learning tailoring learning styles is is not research supported but then i i if instead I lead with curiosity and I say, what does that mean? And they say, well, I, you know, I develop a lot of opportunities in my, in my lessons for students to work in a variety of formats and they can engage in multiple media and they can do different things to express their understanding. I'm like, whoa, those are a lot of really good things. And so I need to hold that intention with, okay, the original premise is flawed, but the actual manifestation in the classroom are lots of really positive things. And I need to hold both of those truths in my hands. Yeah. And I think that the takeaway from this is actually very similar. Yeah. I understood that their primary critique is that the growth mindset specific air quotes, like the specific research operationalization of growth mindset and the theory for how it produces impacts is not very well supported is how I understand their meta analysis. But a lot of really good things that come with a lot of growth mindset interventions or implementations are probably able to explain some of the really good things that happen. And so 
these programs and this i say that outside of the branded the branded material but like if i commit to doing growth mindset work and so we embrace the struggle and we think about improvement and we focus on the process and we do a lot of these other things and those are the explanation for improvement but they are improving my practice i need to hold both of those things in my hands it seems like they're saying an individual student's understanding of how intelligence work is irrelevant. What is relevant is their ability to embrace challenge, persist in, uh, persist when faced with obstacles, uh, see effort as the path to mastery, internalize criticism for improvement, and be inspired by the success of others. If they can do those things, it doesn't matter what they how they think about how minds work. Specifically, they cite a study where in the study, there is a group of students for whom they're like, leave the fixed mindset stuff. Like, yeah, fixed mindset, it's fine. Fixed mindset. But effort, effort is good, right? And, and they got all of the same benefits. So... Yeah, no, yeah, But I think from an implementation and a policy standpoint, I, I'm in the same place as I am on learning styles. Of I'm not going to go out and say the word learning styles in any of the stuff that I do. But I'm also, I'm not going to make an enemy of a teacher who is using the phrase learning styles. It is a problematic, it's, it, it, it is a it is under my like it's it didn't pan out learning styles is not research supported i'm i'm not mincing words on that but the realities of their implementation in their classroom are great right so like am i helping or hurting by making a problem with them uh what i can do see this is actually going to be really easy for me i bet it's still like my my beginning of the year unit is not going to change very much because I can simply reband, rebrand it instead of a growth mindset, a growth requires struggle mindset. That's it. That's all you do. That is all you have to do. You don't talk about growth. You don't talk about fix. And and okay. So then the the what I would like to see more because I do ban the word smart in my classroom, and I wonder if that is a fight that I can let go. I would like to see instead of. You know, there's no big difference between growth and whatever. I would like to see more about essentialist intelligence language and its effects specifically maybe independent of some of these other issues. Just like, are there negative, what are the, are there psyche or behavior shaping consequences to certain types of language re, uh, directly like not as a fixed versus growth, not as a, does the student understand how the mind work? Like what are some of the behavioral consequences of using this language? Because uh, if I can can continue to sell the growth requires struggle mindset and then just stop the fight with smart. If I can work, because a lot of the, the way that I read this paper, a lot of the, the studies that contributed to it, a lot of the analysis focused on the, the students and the study, you know, the study mechanisms working with students. When I think 
the value of growth mindset, little G, little M, not the branded stuff. I I genuinely have no idea. Yeah, I don't what know about the branded Ollie, stuff. I'll like I don't, I don't know anything about I it. I haven't, I haven't even, I've never even been to the website. Didn't like, know I about it. No idea. But if that's a useful heuristic for teachers to change the way they structure some of their pedagogy, I'm gonna have a really hard time moving away from that if that imperfect description is compelling and motivating and useful to help teachers recontextualize their work into uh, into one that emphasizes a productive struggle. I'm really glad that you brought up learning styles because the problem with learning styles is the essentialism fallacy and that an individual might wrap themselves up in the identity of a visual learner so that they don't have to listen to you because that's thing is hard and they don't like doing it. Uh, but, but that doesn't mean they can't learn via listening, nor that they shouldn't develop the skill of listening comprehension. It's just that I'm a visual learner, so I'm not going to do that and I can't do it and it's not good. Well, perhaps the problems with this growth mindset are also about essentialism and like getting into like, you don't have a growth mindset about this, that like prescription of when your attitude is a growth mindset and when your attitude is a fixed mindset might be the less, um, if meaningful part of this entire material anyway, that like, um, like just putting the students to the question, uh, are going to, are you going to use how you feel as an excuse to quit or are you going to exhibit, uh, exert some kind of effort or behavior to get past this. If that's the question you're asking at every one of those stress points in their uh, skill or knowledge development journey, then it then it becomes about what labels you choose to use. And maybe fixed mindset, maybe it's not about the perception of intelligence, but it is the difference between struggle. It is a difference between pro productive and unproductive struggle. So rebrand it however you want to encourage those that suite of productive effort behaviors. Well, and I think that's an important fork. I you know, I'm living in an idyllic fantasy where the authors listen to this conversation. And I think that's an important separation because a lot of their critiques were around the research methodology. And I don't want to minimize any of that. Researchers need to better identify what they're studying. Sure do. And that includes me. I need to do a better job of identifying what I'm studying. I saw in their lists of best practices, which is extensive and discussed and provides examples and provides state of the literature and all of that can make me better because there are places where I can improve. And that's valuable. And that is different from our lens here today, which is what does this mean for my classroom right now? Right. And so I think it would have a overall negative impact on the world if the big takeaway from this study was growth, growth mindset is garbage. Some students are just smart. So go back to whatever you were doing. That would be terrible. Yeah, that would be bad. And I don't think that's what they're saying. Right. So to be clear about some of the imperfect implementations and researchers do a better job. There are some in the world who are considering maybe we should throw all the growth mindset stuff in the trash. 
and all of that exists in the same world where there's an entire suite of products branded as pirate stuff. And all of that gets to continue existing with literally no research going on about it at all. And it's an entire brand and they produce many, many books and they make their money do, going around doing keynotes and other talks. And it's all about like, just love hard enough and everything will be fine. Yeah. Oh my gosh. And kicking me. Yeah. It, yeah. It's, kicking me. Yeah. It, it, it's a genuine horror show. And I have had direct, like, like firsthand interactions, not a whole bunch, but not zero with the people who are like the primary purveyors of those products. And they are, those interactions suggest to me that the people and their practice and their company are every bit what they look like from the outside. And so I have some problem knowing that there are these products that are highly I successful see. that are drawing enormous amounts of money going around doing the talks and giving the workshops and writing the books. I get it. We All can, this trash with like nothing. We can critique the research methods of growth mindset because they have some. And they're real and legitimate and we need to do better. Right. There are also education products that are terrible. You can't critique their research methods because they don't have any. And they're also generating a lot of money in this capitalist machine that Goodness we built. Yeah. And I need to hold those in both hands. Like well, those exist. Another thing that I wasn't going to say, but we're here now. And that is like, I'm just kind of sad that we go to standardized tests because we can measure them. And that's just a sad, that's just because it's, it's, it's not my goal as an educator and it's not what drove me to the profession. And it's, and like my buildings, like building goal is to improve our students ACT scores. And I'm like, yeah, I care about my ACT scores. Well, solely, solely for my avid kids, but I do like, I've got that professional investment because for them, it is kind of my job to recognize that's an integrated part of them going to college and getting a degree. Like I got to, the ACT is going to be a part of that journey child. We're gonna. We can't ignore that. They have declared they want to succeed in a flawed system. I a flawed committed. system does not undermine. Yes, exactly. Okay, so I gotta. I gotta like. You know, we we can't. We can't. Yeah. Anyway, um, we're not gonna. It doesn't matter. Um, but I. I don't like that. My building's goal is ACT. I don't like that. And and like. Um. Well. Well. We're going to critique. We're gonna measure growth mindset attitudes against standardized test scores because we need something measurable and concrete in order to 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 measure value i understand like i was never i wasn't even going to say this but it, it it came up and so it just makes me sad that that's our stick because it can be measured i also wasn't going to say it out loud uh, yeah but the it is unfortunate because it is outside the scope of this meta-analysis. But this specific issue, in particular, one of the things that they that the authors brought up a lot was not very many studies were checking whether they actually changed students' mindsets. And the studies that did check the only ones who really found success were the ones who failed to measure a change in students' mindsets. And the note that I made 
was I feel like we've got to consider that the act of measuring it is directly antithetical to that specific domain of thinking. Like the act of saying we need to measure that you believe measurement is irrelevant is troubling. And I don't know that I don't know that it invalidates these authors critique, but it does demand consideration. I'm trying to imagine I'm trying to imagine building a classroom that's in the framework of like of an RCT and a randomized controlled trial. And here we're going to get this measurement. It's going to be a highly valid and reliable measurement. All while I am telling them, ignore the measurement, let's just get better. And like that direct conflict is going to make it hard. It's going to make it hard. Two things. The first, so even if you do things ideally, where you're like growth and fixed mindset and you do all the things you give them a pre, I mean, you give them a pre-test survey of, of attitude. Then you go through your treatment. You give them a post-test survey of attitude. The irony is that the fixed mindset students will game the survey to get the most points to show that they are mind, they right. are growth. And so right. I get that. And I, I, they, they put that in there. Like I, I know that is a catch. Yeah. That that's a complication with measuring it. So that's one thing that they put in that I actually thought was, I really, yeah. Yeah. I liked, re I like reading that, acknowledging that. Document everything. How was the beer? Gosh, so I really loved the smell. And then it has more of the, it has more of the like bitter hoppy taste than I was expecting. So my first drink was, oh no. And then I got past the first couple of drinks and I've been enjoying it ever since. I'm not a big fan of the classic American lagers. Uh, and, uh, it's the head, the characteristic of it, the smell of that head made me like regret all of my life choices. Uh, so the head was terrible. The smell is terrible, but the taste is not terrible. And that was surprises and pleases me. It tastes better than the smell. It has a neat, slightly kind of the soury finish and has this very, very subtle sweetness. That a lot of what I don't like about the taste of lagers might be mitigated if they were 9% APVs <laughs> too. <laughs> the 9.5% APV uh, adds some sweetness and cuts some of the bitter that I might normally traditionally associate with this kind of beer. And like... And this makes a lot of sense that if like, well, we, we watered down the beer so that we could stretch it and make it last longer. But if this is really what it's supposed to be like, like I could probably drink a 9.5% Budweiser and think it's awesome. Yeah. The, the early sweetness that in my first drink was overwhelmed by the bitterness that follows. But then after I got one or two drinks in and I kind of sort of became accustomed to that bitterness, then my experience was taken over by that early sweetness. And so then that is what I experienced through most of the drinking is sweet. There's this bitter reminder that the world is terrible. Yeah. 
but things are going to be okay. okay. And, and of course I have this, I'm sure it's unfounded worry that since there's sort of this minimalist kind of approach to beer in the, in this, or at least how I'm perceiving it to be a minimalist approach to beer brewing, that a lot of these are going to be similar to this. And I can't wait to find out all the ways that I'm wrong about that. This is a wonderful implementation of my suggestion for the theme. We appreciate you all tuning in for our first episode of Season 7. I'm looking forward to another school year of reading research and having conversations with all of you. This is Better Together, so go on 2pintplc.com and tell us what topics you want us to consider, what papers you want us to read, so this can be a true PLC that includes everybody. As we pursue growth, discuss research, and struggle well.